Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, why don't you get started? Because I know you have a lot of news to share with us today. Okay, Lori, I'll start with this really interesting story. A giant tortoise. This is in the Galapagos on Fernandina Island. I don't know my islands that well down there. But they discovered a giant tortoise from a species that has been thought to be extinct for 112 years due to eruptions of that volcano down there. And they found it during an expedition. Is that amazing? Wow. Yeah. So this is a species called, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Chelanoidus fantasticus with a P-H-A-N-tasticus. And uh, that is the species. They were able to compare the DNA of this tortoise to a one single sample that they had from a male that was discovered in 1906. And uh, the Yale team, a team from Yale, is involved in this kind of stuff. So this has been one of the great mysteries. How did this happen and why? But now is the search to find another or more than one other tortoise of the same species. Yeah. Get them together, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. So if you can get them together, then the plan would be to take the offspring and raise them and then reintroduce them and try to get the process reignited. So that's a really interesting story. The population of giant tortoises in the Galapagos is now thought to be only about two to 300,000 individuals and that is, uh, it may seem like a lot, but it's only 10 to 15% of what it used to be. Mm. So we'll see what happens. Back to California, Lori, okay? I know you like your great white sharks, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's been determined that a population off the California, North California coast is growing, and they've got about 300 great white sharks in the area. So that's good news because you need them for the whole ecosystem, right? Apex predators. Yep. And uh, they have a wide range, so they go down south and then come back up. And it's really interesting how they conduct this sort of count. They use a seal decoy to lure the sharks toward their boats, and then they photograph them and count them. And it turns out each shark has a unique dorsal fin, and they just use the appearance of the fin as if it's a fingerprint. And they can tell who's who just by the fin. So you think a fin's a fin. It's not. So a seal decoy. Yeah, dead seal. Right. Right. Like a model. Right. Right. And And they drag it along. Right. Shark comes and says, oh, that was a trick. That was a trick. I'm mad at you, but... You got my picture. Okay. Yeah, something like that. So it's a it's a great news. Uh, the, in, the population of sharks indicates that the whole system is working properly, probably, and so that's uh, good news. Okay, this is a uh, heavy-duty research scientific study coming from Norway looking at killer whales and the contaminants, the mad-made environmental contaminants that get into their bodies and their fat and their muscle. Oh, yeah, we've spoken about this. And uh, even though there have been many efforts successful to ban some of these chemicals like DDT and PCBs, the polychlorinated biphenyls, of course, these products get replaced with other things until they are determined to be toxic also. And the latest pair that this paper looks at, in addition to the others, are new types of brominated flame retardants like PBT, that stands for pentabromotoluene, and PFAS, perfluoroalkyl substances. And these are widely used, and uh, you know anyone who thinks about this would 
probably conclude they're probably not safe. It just hasn't been deemed dangerous yet. They're used for fire retardants in homes and carpets and stuff like that. Anyway, these are present in the washed up specimens that they studied, a handful of them. But in one of the babies uh, who was uh, necropsy, they found uh, evidence of these two uh, new chemicals also. So the conclusion was that this is being passed in utero, right, to the is that the right word, in utero? Anyway, uh, while they're gestating, wherever they gestate, from the moms into the baby, this chemical can be transferred. So that's not going to be good. And the conclusion is these chemicals are killing them and washing them No, that them wasn't up. the conclusion oh, in this one. Oh. Yeah, they don't know why these washed up. It happens pretty frequently. I see. Yeah, but... You but just incidentally, they found this. And, and how about all the other thing. plastics that are in the ocean, it's too? It's just a mess. That's yep. right. And yep. we are bathed in all these toxins, everybody. So it's a dangerous, uh, toxic world. It is a dangerous, toxic world. But we are truly destroying our beautiful oceans. Yep. Okay, what else? This is a tough and sad story in Texas where two sheriff's deputies, right, police officers, they were fatally shot by a person they were making a uh, call on who was uh, reported to have a dog who bit someone. That's sort of the story. Mm. This uh, owner, Jeffrey Nichols, who was 28, he was charged with two counts of murder of a peace officer in connection with the shooting of these deputies. And evidently, uh, Nicholas refused to cooperate, and uh, he was ordered by the deputy's office property. And then he was making threats to shoot the deputies if they did not leave. So this is not a savory character. They tried to control him. They tried to use an electronic control device, which is pretty generous, I would say, right? And, and he pulled out his semi-automatic pistol, killed them both, and then injured somebody else. Oh, it's terrible. You know, that is sort of a insane situation and, and very sad that you think you're just going to do like a animal control or animal welfare situation and then you're just targeted and killed by a very angry and armed person, right? Bob Ferber, attorney Bob Ferber, he alluded to this in a recent show. He was talking about the origins of the Los Angeles Animal Task Force and he was explaining to us how difficult it was to get anyone to respond to animal issues. The police did not want to deal with it, right? It was they were too busy chasing down murderers. And animal control, they were afraid because they're not trained and they certainly are not armed. And it was an impasse. So, he, of course, he was able to develop a much better system, which worked. But you can see that this is a, a real situation Okay, next up on the hit parade is that uh, more than 1,200 groups and businesses and individuals have written a letter to President Biden opposing the uh, BLM's mass roundups of wild horses and burros, Bureau of Land Management. We talked about this recently also. These are mass roundups. There's, it's a very complicated uh, situation, but we do have herd management areas right in the West where the Bureau of Land Management sort of manages the populations of these free-roaming horses. And then there's the conflict with the grazing and the question of animal welfare and whether you want to sterilize animals. And there's a lot of interested parties, and it's a seemingly intractable situation. Anyway, a group has now come together to ask the president to uh, impose a moratorium on the roundups and where that leads, I don't know. And I don't know if that's a good situation, but there's a lot of 
sensitive of people who, who certainly believe that's not the right thing to do. So one of the leaders in this coalition named Todd Schumann, he stated that we believe the BLM has largely abandoned its statutory mandate to manage these cherished national icons in a manner that is humane and balanced. Instead, the BLM continues to weave a false narrative that blames roughly 100,000 wild horses and burros for degrading public rangelands, ignoring the cumulative impacts of millions of privately owned cattle and sheep. So that's one perspective. We'll see uh, if Mr. Biden is interested in this. He's got a lot on his mind. <laughs> he has a lot on his mind? <laughs> Okay, whatever. Well, there's a lot on someone's mind. Yeah. And not to confuse BLM with Black Lives Matter, this is Bureau of Land Management. Right, right. let's be clear there. Right. Okay, okay. gee, we're going to take you off the air. I had to say that. <laughs> Listeners are going to say, what is she talking what about? Say, okay. This is a good story. There is now a scientific evidence, this is actually a sort of a small pilot study, but hopefully pointing in the right direction, that emotional support animals, right, not the trained service animals that we all know about, but emotional support animals, basically your pet or my pet, who is not specifically trained, uh, can provide benefits to individuals with serious mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, and loneliness. So this was actual peer-reviewed, published scientific evidence that emotional support animals can help people's mental health. An interesting feature of this study, besides the usual psychological indices, is that they drew blood and checked biomarkers of stress and bonding. That's cortisol and oxytocin to see. And they found a trend toward the direction of improvement. So... But what they have to do is compare that to just someone's regular pet and what that does to their owner's emotions, right? Yeah. Okay. So you're getting to a little criticism here. And I am getting putting to... on the yes. hat, your hat of a sane person, actually, to do this. And a sane yes, person? Okay. Yes, like a thinking person. Okay. And yes, these, these pilot studies in the sociological or psychological realm, they are often... Uh, incorrect and lead nowhere, right? And not reproducible. And uh, we'll just have to see where this goes, you know? What would Clive Wynn Clive say? Wynn. Okay, Professor Clive Wynn from West Virginia University. He's, uh, I would, I'll put words in his mouth. I hope, please excuse me. I think he would be very skeptical and say uh, no conclusions should be drawn and uh, carry on. That's what I think he'd say. I think you're right. Okay. Anyway. I'll just say, I think it's research worth doing, and uh, let's see where it leads. And Lori, this is one I think you will like also. You know, there is this longstanding program, or at least from 1987, which is the American Red Wolf Recovery Program. Yeah. This is led by U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and they have been reintroducing uh, red wolves into the wild. And they have done this since then, and they've probably put back 150 animals to try to repopulate red wolves in North Carolina. They used to have a wide range, and now it's really contracted to that. And what's happened now is that they just had another release of a few animals. And uh, I just thought I would note that this is really the first repopulation effort that seems to be successful. 
and it's uh, going on for decades. So, Until we decide to say, okay, now hunting season for red wolves, you right? Know, you know, you complicate things so perfectly, but you're <laughs> right. I know it's insane. It's insane to do all this work. Then their status reverts back to not endangered, and then the hunters come in. It's crazy. I know. Yeah. It's sad. Okay, Lori, can I have a break? Thank you, Peter, for that. Yes, you may have a break. More with animals today coming up. back to the show. Peter, you have some monkey business to share I with us. do too much monkey business. I never heard about this, so I wanted to let everyone know there is a much-beloved colony of wild African green monkeys. They live near the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. African green monkeys? Yeah, well, they're green because their coat has a slight green tinge, not like like lime green or anything like that. Okay. Okay, but and they're related to the vervet monkeys or closely related to them. Right. Anyway, they've been living happily next to the airport for decades. They were th- thought to have escaped in 1948 from a place called the Darnia Chimpanzee Farm, which shut down later in 1956. That was a place for supplied animal research monkeys, and they also were like a roadside attraction with uh, alligator wrestling and all the fun things that we uh, love. Anyway, they finally have done some genetic testing and some other work, and they were able to confirm that this small population did indeed come from that that release. The escape. Yeah. Oh, yes. Not release. That's right. Let's be clear here. The (laughs) escape, these crafty monkeys just wanted to be on their own and avoid their fate. It turns out there are two other populations of different monkey species in South Florida, and uh, this happens once in a while. If you park your car at the airport park-and-go, that's where they live or near there, you have to remember to close your windows because they occasionally will go through cars with open windows looking for snacks. And uh, they're clever little buggers, but they seem to be living there happily. And uh, there's a cute picture in the news item of uh, two of them on a branch just sort of kissing. It's nice. They should make a documentary or movie, like The Great Monkey Escape. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What you got there? Okay, I've got a dog and a cat story. You want to go dog or cat? Are they good or bad stories? They're both really great stories. Okay. So just like... Butterflies and rainbows. Oh, okay. I like that. So let's start with the dog. Okay. Dog story. Here it is. So you know that uh, dogs, sniffer dogs or drug detection dogs are widely used by law enforcement and in other places. And the environment now that marijuana is becoming legalized, right, or decriminalized, small amounts, they're not going to, you're not going to get in trouble. Uh, A lot of dogs have been trained on the scent of marijuana. And once you train a dog on a specific scent, that doesn't go away. Right. You can't retrain them. And so you've got these jurisdictions where it's now legal to have it, and that you can't use the dog as a sniffer dog around the car if you're suspecting dangerous other drugs like heroin or meth or fentanyl or whatever, because the owner or the suspect is just going to say, oh, they're smelling my marijuana. This is a false arrest. 
So they've had to retire all these canines around the country, and this they've just had to become pets. Have they become pets? I yeah, thought you that, said this is a good story. Or it is a good story. Were they relinquished to the shelters and then you know, euthanized? The most common thing is that the trainer adopts the dog. You know that. Okay. You're just looking for trouble, <laughs> aren't you? Yes, I so am. So these are good stories, okay? And and they've so they've graduated. And the department's, just as an aside, they need to replace them. It costs about $15,000 to get and train a new dog that's just going to focus on the bad stuff. And uh, so some of them can't really come up with the cash. But anyway, the dogs are moving on. There's a little trick. There's a little trick that the drug dealers do, and that is to light some marijuana in their car just to keep the scent going. So in case they're pulled over, that's their out. Dog hit on my marijuana, which is fine. Go away. Right. Or these drug dealers, heroin dealers, yeah. just have a little bit of marijuana somewhere. Right. That's, yeah. so it's a false alarm. Yeah. Yep. yeah they're very clever. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Here's the cat story. You ready? Yep. No cats were harmed as this uh, scientific experiment was conducted. Okay. 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 Did the cats have an option whether they want to participate in the scientific experiment? Well, they were all people's pets, it okay. turns out. So there is this optical illusion that you may be familiar with called the Kanisha illusion. Oh, yeah. And that illusion uh, was invented in 1950s by a person of that name. And uh, he took three circles, like flat circles, and cut a little wedge out of them. Right, to create a box. Right, but he used three. So his first time was a triangle, but you can create a box too. And your brain... Explain that to people. Okay, so you've got three... Everyone's seen this if you've gone through psychology or intro psych. So you've got, uh, imagine three discs and you've got a little wedge cut out of them, maybe a third of or a quarter of the disc. Right. And, and you align them on a flat surface so that they are at the points of what would be an equilateral triangle. There's no lines. There's no triangle. There's just three little Pac-Man figurines. And your brain perceives a triangle. Right, it it's more it than in. right. It's more than an optical illusion. Your brain is actually perceiving it as a square or a triangle. Right. So that's very interesting. It tells you a lot about how the brain operates if you're in that field, and it's very compelling. Everyone sees the square or whatever. And then there's a whole bunch of variations about it. I've watched some cool videos about this illusion. Anyway. You know, and we know about this tendency for cats to want to sit in boxes. Right. Okay. Related to that is this phenomenon of cats wanting to park themselves on the ground on like a piece of paper or, you know, just a flat object, you know? So you can put a piece of paper or a garment on the ground. And for some reason, the cats are attracted and they will just sit right there of all the floor in the room, they're going to sit on this thing. So that's an interesting thing about cats. Now let's put these ideas together. What happens if you create this illusion on the ground with your Pac-Man things, there's no actual square or triangle, and you just let your cat see where they go. It's just the Pac-Man cutouts on the ground. Right. Right. Cat owners were recruited to try to do this um, at home. And, uh, They started with a pretty large cohort, but ultimately they had just a small group of cat owners who were able to report data and see whether their cats were attracted to this compared to anywhere else. And what did they report? So 
usual disclosures, preliminary data, right? Not careful monitoring, right? So it's sort of a novelty that I would suggest people try at home before they like uh, go to the bank on this one. But most of the cats liked the fake illusion, this illusion more than anywhere else. They were attracted. That's so to interesting. Right in the middle. That's really interesting. Yeah, they, this they liked real or illusory squares. So did they high step into oh, it? Oh, that's or so they... good. That's the next phase. You should be a graduate student. You should go back to school. Yeah, I should. Yeah. 30 years ago. We'll get you some more student loans. They're easy to get these days. <laughs> All right, so no cats were harmed in the... In no, that's good. That, right, right. That's a good cat story. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. See you later. three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Peter and I saw a wasp nest in the cam light on the porch just above where my dogs sunbathe outside. And I looked around some more, and actually they were hanging out in many of the recessed lighting fixtures we have. Well, fortunately, our friend Dr. Robert Reed is with us today. He's medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. Welcome back, Robert. Hey, Lori. Nice to talk to you. Robert, how do I know if my dog has been stung by a bee or a wasp? Well, it's a really good question. It's not an uncommon problem. Uh, it might be worth taking a minute to talk about the difference between wasps and bees, ants and scorpions, yeah. if you'd like, and kind of go over the relative risk of each. Please. Um, so most of the encounters that are the, the stings that we encounter are from bees, uh, specifically honeybees. Um, honeybees and bumblebees and wasps and hornets or even ants are all part of the same group of insects that uh, they carry venom and that sting as opposed to biting. And wasps and hornets are pretty much the same thing. A hornet's just a different variety of a wasp. Um, bees are a little bit different than the type of venom that they have. Each of the different groups of animals has a little bit different venom. Um, and you know, a dog's tendency to react allergically is not necessarily the same for one as it is for the other, although dogs can have allergy to all of them, but they may not. They may only react to one of them. Wasps are less commonly seen than um, honeybees, which is mainly a function of the numbers. So just more individuals in our local environment of honeybees in most people's households and neighborhoods than wasps. But wasps and hornets can be more problematic uh, in the sense that they are more aggressive than honeybees because they're predators and they'll actually be agitated to go off, go after a dog more easily than a honeybee might. A honeybee is only likely to sting if it's been annoyed. So if a dog noses up 
um, to it while it's uh, feeding or steps on it or tries to bite it or eat it or happens to wander near a hive unknowingly, then they may get attacked uh, by honeybee. But the, the reaction that you would see in a dog is going to be pretty similar for either a bee or a wasp. It's most likely it's going to be just a little bit of swelling and pain and redness at the site of the sting. Um, sometimes the swelling can be a little bit more regional. It can involve more of the area of the body that, um, than just the site of the sting. Uh, but those are both going to be grouped into local or focal type reactions, which are less dangerous. They should still be addressed and treated, but less dangerous than a reaction that's systemic or affecting all of the body or different parts of the body away from where the sting occurred. Um, those can be as severe as anaphylactic reactions where a dog might collapse um, within maybe 10 or 15 minutes from a drop in blood pressure. Mm. Um, they can have vomiting and diarrhea, trembling, a number of different effects from that. Other systemic type of infections that could develop over the first few hours uh, after seeing are things like hives or swelling uh, around the face. And any of those systemic reactions could be construed as an allergic reaction and um, potentially severe, in some cases, life-threatening. When does a bee sting require emergency vet care? It's a good question, um, and one we get a lot. Uh, because of all the different types of reactions that can occur, most veterinarians would say anytime you know or suspect your dog has been stung by a, a bee or wasp, you, you have it checked out. And, you know, get it in as quickly as possible, uh, either to your local veterinarian or to an emergency pet hospital, because you just really don't know what course it's going to take. The majority of them are going to be non-life-threatening, where you'll just have local swelling that needs to be treated with antihistamines, um, anti-inflammatories, maybe some steroids and pain relievers. We occasionally use fluid treatments for um, epinephrine, depending on the severity. But if it turns out to be a more severe systemic reaction, it could involve hospitalization and, and much more aggressive ther therapy because the, uh, the potential danger can be much greater for some, not many, but some individuals. If I see the stinger, should I try to pull it out? Another good question. Yeah, you know, it's only going to be the uh, honeybees are the only ones that lose their stinger. Uh, and, and most of the stings we see are from honeybees. Uh, yeah, you should try to get it out, but there's, you should be careful in the way that you try to remove it because when a, a honeybee stinger is pulled away from its body, uh, it actually kills the bee and it pulls out usually the venom sac with it. So if you squeeze it, you might actually inject more venom into the site. So you should do something like a flat card. Most people use a driver's license or a credit card or something like that to just scrape it away so that you can pull it out without having to squeeze it. Whether we see a stinger or not, we should contact our veterinarian. You should, yeah, because uh, again, you know, many times these don't develop anything, into anything serious, but sometimes they do, and there's not really a good way to know uh, which direction it's gonna take. Right. And for dogs who, are, who we know are already prone to allergic reactions, they may even want you to have other treatments on hand in case something happened yeah. um, that needed more immediate attention yeah. than you could get by taking it into the vet. How about the dangers of multiple bee stings, like running into a beehive or a swarm of bees? Multiple bee stings, particularly in a smaller dog, 
can have a, a much more severe effect. But most of the time, it's an allergic reaction that poses the greatest threat because it's uncommon for a dog to get that many bee stings. Yes, it's possible that a dog, if it uh, approached uh, inadvertently a, bee, a beehive, or particularly one that had Africanized bees in it and a lot of bees attacked at once, or if it came near uh, a hornet's nest, some species of hornets and wasps um, do have social nests and uh, they also can attack in, in groups. And, and in fact, sometimes uh, the act of stinging or um, trauma to one of the individuals can stimulate others to become more aggressive. So you can get multiple bee stings if that happens. It's a good idea to know, you know, I always tell people um, when we're, trying to reduce the risks of uh, things that our dogs can encounter in the environment. It's a good idea to know what's in your environment, and this applies to, to bees and wasps, of course, but also to things like snakes and coyotes that you know can always pose a risk if we're not careful. You just really should know what's in your environment. And if there's a wasp a nest or a beehive in the vicinity of your yard, you should know about it, and um, you should either avoid it or take measures, measures to have it moved, if it's a beehive, or even potentially eliminated if it's a, a, a hornet's nest or a wasp's nest. Um, that should always be done by a pest professional because it can be dangerous otherwise. Um, not only should you know where those things are, if you have a hive or a nest in your vicinity, but you, you have to think about you know, time of day when you might encounter bees, areas in the yard where you might, more likely to have, where bees are more likely to congregate. Um, certainly the time of year can have an effect as well. Bees normally are, are active in the late morning and particularly in climates where there's some seasonality, they're gonna be more active in the spring. Obviously they're gonna be around flowers because they feed on pollen and nectar. So they're gonna congregate around their food source. But sometimes in a hot climate where, where we are, on a hot afternoon, they're going to be looking for water. These are all things that they carry back to their nests or their hives. And if you're, if an area of lawn, for instance, has just been watered and it's damp, then you could find a lot of bees there. And, and you should be aware of that because, you know, your dog could be walking around on a surface that has actually bees resting on it trying to get water. You know, we see a lot of bee stings in our environment, in our climate, in the fall, or when we have warm days and cool nights, so fall and spring, because bees can be away from the hive and just not make it back. They're either weak, they're, you know, they're near the end of their lives, or the weather gets cool, and they, they don't die, but they're on the ground, and they can't necessarily make it back to the hive. Um, they can still sting if the dog is nosing around on the ground and happens to pick one up in his or her mouth. That's a, a time when we often see those and knowing when bees are going to be in the environment and where can really help you uh, avoid those situations. I imagine stings on or in the mouth or throat could be quite dangerous due to swelling of the airways. Absolutely, yeah. Even if it's not an allergic reaction, if there's significant swelling in the mouth or the throat from a sting in that area, it can compromise breathing, which can be dangerous. Do cats get stung too? They do. We don't see them very often. Um, cats would have basically the same symptoms. I would think more likely a cat would have stepped on it. It might be shaking its paw or, or limping or have swelling. I think it's likely or more likely they might have eaten it. So you'd see drooling 
swelling around the mouth, pawing at the mouth. Um, the treatment would be very similar to what we would do with dogs, uh, but it's uncommon for us to see these things in cats. It can happen, but it's, it's more a dog thing than a cat thing. Any final thoughts? Well, again, I, I think that the most important thing with bees particularly is to remember that, that they are you know, an important part of our environment. And you know, especially in California where we are, uh, people have recognized the value that they have for not just uh, you know, environmentally, but economically. And we really want to do what we can to preserve bees in our environment without you know, having to kill them. And we want them around for a lot of reasons. On the other hand, we don't want them endangering our pets. And therefore, it's important for us to recognize what parts of our environment may be risks to our pets and try to understand them so that we can do our part to reduce the chance that they're going to have a bad interaction. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you very much. More with Animals Today right after the break. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier too without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. In our endless search for quality dog toys, let me introduce VIP Products and their line of interactive dog play toys. With your dogs, you can toss, fetch, catch, and tug with their colorful, durable, and safe dog toys. These are notable because they meet or exceed all safety regulations put in place for children's toys. That's right, and they come with or without squeakers and with or without stuffing. They're quite durable, colorful, and fun. Check out VIP products. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're going to talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German Shepherd dog of all time? Oh, the German Shepherd part helps. That's Rin Tin Tin, right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed-out dog kennel in France during the war. 
Now, according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin Tin used for the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, was not the original Rin Tin Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine, you know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, yep. but I bet you don't know Toto's real name. No, I don't. Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags, that was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the Winky guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the Winky guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, yeah, another little dog. Yep. He was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was... Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home, and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins, a dog trainer, considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he'd ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction. Remember that oh, one? That, no, that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little genre there. That's <laughs> right? good. Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows? Vaguely. It was a long time ago. I was alive, though. Green Acres. <laughs> yeah, I know Green Acres. <laughs> you are my wife. Goodbye, City Life. <laughs> that's funny. See, you're old enough, too. <laughs> okay. 
enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico. Uh, before the gecko, maybe. That's right. The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess? Oh, no. You Help. know this one. I do. Uh, there's a chihuahua. Go a ahead. A chihuahua named Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Who from. played Elwood's faithful companion in the Legally Blonde movies. Yeah, I remember Bruiser. Bruiser's real name was Mooney. <laughs> Elwood dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that? Bruiser could pull it off. By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? Yeah, played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple chihuahuas (laughs) in Legally Blonde. These two chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home. You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as a spokesperson figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just get get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. Petey from Petey. Our, our gang, the Little and Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original Petey, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American pit bull terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye and dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. <laughs> this was in the our gang comedy schools out and the pitch was dated 1930 when pal the wonder dog died his son named pete took over the role producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle a custom that would continue in every future remake of the little rascals nice. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a yellow lab mix and best known for his performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family, and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of... Oh, my God. It's the saddest scene in film history. (laughs) Old Yeller defends the family against their rabid wolf. And during the fight, Old Yeller's bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot and kill Old Old Yeller. You don't remember that scene? I I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch that movie. my parents loved me. Did not allow me to see it. Well, maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened to Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, Lori. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.